is Sunday night, recording this for Monday morning. Just a quick announcement, and I'll put this in the announcements as well. Um, this week, uh, I'm going to be recording all of the lectures the night before. So this is Sunday night. I'm recording this for Monday. Monday nights will be for Tuesday and so on. So you'll see them released a little bit sooner than typically. It's only because my, my kids are home this week. They've been with grandparents and at camps and other kind of stuff. Um, so I have some, some parenting duties throughout the day. Um, and I know you all are working too, some of you throughout the day. So we're, we're trying to, we're trying to figure out this summer school thing as best we can, but long story short, know that uh, when this is posted, which will be, you know, kind of Sunday night, this is for Monday. And then what's posted Monday night is for Tuesday and so on. Um, oh, sorry. Didn't have my mic close to me. Um, secondly, the quiz will be released on uh, Tuesday morning, and then the exam for this week is Wednesday, I believe. Let me, let's, let's double check that to make sure um, that that is the case. Let's go here, summer 2021. Yeah, so um, June 22nd, ex uh, quiz number two, and June 23rd, which is Wednesday, exam number two. All right. So let's go back now to lecture three. And also a quick update. I'm going to start grading those exams tonight. I know I promised you this weekend. It's been busy with a few things, but uh, but I'll get to those and, you, and you'll have your grades by, by tomorrow for sure. Okay. Um, we have been, well, what have we been doing? Uh, we started by kind of talking about kind of pre-Spanish flu. What did America look like in terms of public health? And the, the short answer is not a lot but they're beginning to build some public health infrastructure. Last time we spoke, we talked about how um, we have the public health infrastructure, kind of, sort of, and the Spanish flu is, is on the uh, horizon. And now we have these kind of public health groups that are trying to do the best they can to sort of sort out the problems that the Spanish flu are creating. And so we talked about last time, you know, universities closing and churches closing and you know, people are going to begin to wear masks, as we'll see uh, uh, later on, and and all these sort of techniques and and, and tricks to, to try to help solve what is a pretty a pretty difficult problem because we don't, while we have something of a public health infrastructure, we don't have a really good understanding of disease yet or germ theory, um, and so if you could only treat something based on its symptoms, it's going to be difficult to to really tackle um, the core of the problem. Today, what we're going to do is kind of continue on with that discussion, talk about a big fancy word called progressivism, and then sort of explain a bit of the difficulty that not only in 1918 and 1919 they had in sort of demonstrating the harms of Spanish flu to the public, but also what we had in 2020. How do you demonstrate the harms of COVID to the public? And so we're going to see some examples of that. We'll take a break in the middle like we did last time, um, and uh, let's get started. Let's talk about public health and progressivism. What is progressivism? Here is what you first need to know about this word progressivism. The word progressivism now is used to describe a certain kind of political ideology that, you know, we sometimes associate it with like liberalism, modern American liberalism, you know, that we might say that uh, Joe Biden is a progressive and so-and-so is a conservative. Um, there is something to be said that, I mean, <clears throat> how do I want to say this? It is true that there is some relationship between the modern way that we use the word progressive and the historic way we use, use the word progressive. But when we talk about the progressive era historically, we are talking about a particular moment in time in American history. 
So progressivism is a political movement that arises in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And basically what progressivism is or what the progressive era was, is it emphasized technical knowledge and skill rather than traditional politics. All right. So if we look at um, the traditional way that politics has been done, and by that, I mean, prior to the progressive movement. Yes, there was sort of limited democracy. Some people were able to vote. But the way people got political positions is through something called the spoils system. The spoils system was the idea that you spoil your friends um, and punish your enemies. So in other words, if you get into power, you give, your, you give those jobs to your friends or people that support you politically, and you kick out the people that don't support you or people that are your enemies, all right? And if this seems familiar, it's because this is some of the way politics still works today. There's still a, a bit of spoil system that exists in our political system. When Joe Biden got into office, he was within his rights to fire all of the, the Trump appointees in the cabinet and hire his own, which is basically what he did. Um, only one case recently that I'm aware of, um, and that was with, uh, with, with President Obama, did he actually have one uh, holdover from President Bush's cabinet, um, uh, Gates, he was a defense secretary, on his staff, all right? So on the one hand, this is pretty familiar. You punish your enemies and re reward your friends. You spoil your friends, punish your enemies. But um, in the late 1800s, this is a much bigger movement, progressivism, to move away a bit from spoils and begin to think about doing politics as sort of having technical expertise. So here's an example of this. Um, let's say that you go to college and you learn a great deal about finance, and then you go and work for a local government, all right? You would be hired based on the technical skill that you have to do the job. Or maybe you have a second language, like maybe you're a Spanish speaker. That would be a very useful skill to have for a lot of municipal governments right now. So you were hired because you possess a, a specific skill, not because you're friends with the, the mayor or not because you know someone downtown, as they say, um, simply because you, you have the attributes to do the job. Um, we also know that some public service and public sector jobs um, require test taking. You know, you score a certain um, amount on the test or you do well on the test and th this is a way for you to get into that position. So for example, if we think about how um, a firefighter gets their job, or maybe someone with the, uh, uh, with the foreign service gets their job. There's test taking, there's skills based things that they must do in order to get that position. It is not simply good enough to know the mayor or to know someone downtown to get the job. Do those things still happen? Of course they do, but the progressive era is trying to push back against that. What does that have to do with public health infrastructure? Well, it has to do with a lot. Because public health infrastructure is the idea that you are building up a team of experts, a team of people skilled in a particular area to do the work of healthcare. All right. We're not talking about doctors and nurses. This is not what we mean when we talk about public health infrastructure. All right. We're talking about people that have knowledge of health outcomes. We're talking about people that could be doctors or they could have a background in nursing, but really their job is to get across to the public the things that are most concerning or the things that are a, a problem or something that they should they should care about as it pertains to their health. So if there's a global pandemic swirling in your community, then the public health infrastructure, not the specific doctor or nurse, is the, uh, uh, the group of people they're going to be giving 
sort of advice to the community on how to act. All right. So your personal doctor is not telling you to wear or not wear masks. Now you can get that advice. Okay. But they are not setting those mandates that comes from political uh, uh, positions or political appointees in some cases with the help of people that are skilled or knowledgeable of public health and public health out outcomes. Public health infrastructure begins in a lot of major American cities, but then it spreads throughout the country. Basically, by the end of 1920, pretty much every state in the union has some sort of public health infrastructure. The largest, I think it's the largest public building, maybe other than the courthouse in Union County is our public health office. So if you're not sure where that is, if you get on 74 and then get off on um, Highway 601, it's right there on the left-hand side. It's a huge building um, that houses our, basically many of our public health officials in this county. They're not elected positions. They're people that get their job because they have a specific skill set or knowledge. All right. Why does any of this matter? It matters because in these little communities and big communities and communities in between, had to figure out the best way to approach the threat of the Spanish flu. And so uh, last time we talked about some ways they did that, like, like close things down. Broadly speaking, there are sort of three approaches to take when fighting um, something like the Spanish flu or, or COVID. All of these three things should sound familiar to you as I talk about them. All right. Now, here's the other thing I want to stress. Public health officials, because they are not often elected officials, in fact, they're very rarely elected officials, are making decisions without political consequence. They are instead making decisions oftentimes oriented around health outcomes. So one of the things that you might have noticed during COVID is that someone with the CDC or someone with your local health department was much more cautious about COVID than maybe your local politician was because the public health infrastructure is not um, often politically appointed um, and they're certainly not voted on. They are simply there because they have the expertise. But your local mayor, your local sheriff's department, your governor, your president, these are all elected positions. And so therefore they might have a different um, approach because they're balancing a lot of different things. Public health officials are just trying to say, Here's the safest thing that can be done, whereas po politicians, elected officials are trying to balance, well, we want to keep people safe with these other considerations, business considerations, considerations related to getting children back in school, considerations related to entertainment, hospitality, retail, all the things that we uh, like and enjoy in a, in a kind of normal um, environment. Three things, three ways to think about the options that public health officials have. One, what we know now is lockdowns, all right? And that is basically limiting as much as possible travel, commerce, exchange from occurring. Um, and so a virus that spreads through the contact of humans, from a public health standpoint, lockdowns make a ton of sense. Because if we're concerned about circulation of the virus, the best way to do that is basically to constantly lockdown and quarantine all right now we're not i'm not saying this and even the public health officials aren't saying this as this is the 
um, absolute best method with with no drawbacks. There's certainly drawbacks to this approach, and and we now know them. You know, isolation that can occur. And, you know, people may be feeling depressed, or you know, people needing to exercise. You know, all, all the things related to why it makes you feel crummy if you're in lockdown and quarantine. But if we want to stop a virus from spreading, limiting the contact people have with one another is a is a big part of that. And we did go through at times limited kind of lockdowns and, and quarantines throughout the country. Now, depending on your live or where you live, you might have had very few what we might call lockdowns, um, if any. And depending on where you live, you might have had you know more aggressive local leadership that that prioritized lockdowns, um, as it were. The second piece is mitigation. All right, mitigation is basically where you're going to allow people to kind of live the lives they want to li live, but you're going to put into place kind of what we might call mitigating factors. That's what a mask is. That's what social distancing is, all right? It's saying, look, of course you can go to the grocery store, of course you can go to school, but we want you to wear a mask and we want you to stay six feet away from your closest classmate. Again, these mitigation things were, were decisions made that local communities thought differently, all right? So, you know, Union County, being in the state of North Carolina was more restrictive um, than county right across the border in South Carolina. But if we compared counties, Union County was a bit less restrictive than Charlotte. So Union County kind of freed things up locally quicker than Charlotte did. And there are some obvious reasons for that, um, both political and just the, you know, the, the concern about the virus in cities compared to perhaps in more rural areas. All right. But nevertheless, so we have one lockdowns, three mitigation. The third is what we might call eradication, all right? And this is where we're looking for things like vaccines. This is where we're looking for things like therapies. Um, you also heard people talk about herd immunity, which in retrospect, knowing what we know about COVID and how destructive it was, was probably not the wisest thing. But that's where we're saying, basically, we're going to tackle the disease head on through kind of medical treatments or something like a vaccine, where if we do contract it, our body either knows how to fight it off or our case isn't nearly as severe. What does this have to do with public health officials? What it has to do is Governor Roy Cooper or Henry McMaster or um, Ralph Northam in, in Virginia, none of these people to my knowledge are health experts. So they have to depend on the public health infrastructure to give them some guidance about COVID or about the Spanish flu. And so what I want to do is turn to page 86 to show you just kind of one example of how like a, kind of a local political and public health figure had to sort of sort out what essentially was um, a terrible, terrible situation for the Spanish flu in Roanoke, Virginia. No clue why she focuses on Roanoke, Virginia. I'm just guessing there was a lot of good information about it. And so this is sometimes what we call selecting on our case, um, where you just have a lot of information. So you just tell people about it. Here we go. As with patients, page 86, there was no single public health experience of the pandemic and each community suffered and survived in its own way. All right. So every single community, Union County to Roanoke, Virginia, to Charlotte Mecklenburg, to right across the border in Chesterfield County, they all had their own public health officials and they all thought just a bit differently. Some might have leaned more into lockdown. Some might have leaned more into mitigation. Some might have leaned more into eradication herd immunity or or vaccines or whatever the case may be, or some recognize that all three approaches had a place. As Health Commissioner Foster's early pronouncements suggest, 
public health authorities' decisions were informed by their recent success in improving community health and by their resultant confidence in their ability to protect the citizenry. Though they initially hoped that simple precautions would suffice, the realities of the epidemic soon led them to take more dramatic actions. Some of the measures they employed were simple and required little change in the public's habits, but others required significant sacrifice as well as substantial organization, education, and mobilization of the public. Though health leaders needed to convince their constituents that the emergency called for drastic measures, only rarely did they detail the horrors of the pandemic or the misery of the influenza patients. Instead, they relied on arguments that drew on citizens' sense of duty and patriotism. So here we have this, this dilemma that public health officials find themselves in. What is the right balance to sort of show the seriousness of the disease, all right, without the horrors of the, the, the disease, okay? You don't want, right, you want people to be rightfully cautious but not terrified, but at the same time, how do you, how do you demonstrate that? This was really tricky, and I think we all lived through this with COVID. You know, we basically know now that if you're under the age of 45, if you contracted COVID, you know, your odds of, of survival and long and, and, and adverse long-term effects are, uh, sorry, your odds of survival are, are quite high and your odds of sort of serious long-term effects are, are relatively negligible. But we didn't always know that. And moreover, people under 45 certainly died. People under 45 um, that got COVID that maybe weren't even hospitalized or maybe still having serious long-term effects. This thing called the, the COVID fog or long COVID that we're learning more about seems like a really serious threat to people that contracted COVID um, last year. So the, the point of all this is we don't have a we don't have a magic ball, right? We we didn't know in March of 2020 exactly how this would affect younger people, and so we shut down schools. My kids got out of school March 15th, 16th, and didn't go back until the next fall. Okay. And when they went back, they went back one day a week with masks on, sitting six feet apart from their um, from their classmate. Was this overkill? Maybe, right? But you just don't know. And so this is the difficult place that public health officials find themselves in. How do you strike the right balance between two, being too overly cautious and being not cautious enough? And it takes us back to those three, those three kind of um, tools at their disposal. The lockdown, the quarantine, we stay away from people altogether. The mitigation, we can be around people, but we got to keep our distance and we got to wear our masks in the case of a, of a viral threat. Or we eradicate it. We find the therapy, the, the, the medicine, we get the vaccine, all right? We get herd immunity. That was the strategy of the country of Sweden to, I think, very much mixed results, if not worse than that. Um, and public health officials differ on this. And that's, and that's part of this. All right, let's look at point number three, and then we will take our first break. Just like COVID, they're trying to figure out the Spanish flu, and they're trying to figure out what they think they know about it. And so in 1918, uh, public health officials in, I believe it was New York, yep, New York, um, developed what they called the 10 accepted points. Here are the things we all believe to be true about the virus, Okay. Here are the things we all believe to be true about the virus. Here are the 10 accepted points. It is an, an infectious agent. It has acute communi communicability. If it's infectious and it's communicable, it means we can pass it to another. 
the role of coughing and sneezing in, spread, is, in spreading the infection is significant. All right. If you cough or sneeze, you can spread the infection that way. The consequent importance of hygiene and quarantine in preventing infection. And the need for legislation to control preventing behaviors. Sorry, to control public behaviors. There may have been another two or three points there that I might have missed, not knowing how they kind of split, split them up. But in order to get through the Spanish flu, they had to have a pretty good idea of what it was. And just like COVID, early on, they didn't quite know what it was because they were diagnosing on symptoms, not on causes. I'll repeat that. During the Spanish flu, they were diagnosing on symptoms, but not on causes. Very early on, COVID was incredibly scary because you had all these symptoms, what you thought were symptoms for COVID, and you couldn't get a test. You couldn't test yourself, right? In order to get a test in the early moments of the, of the disease, and you may, you may remember this, you had to call your doctor and your doctor basically had to prescribe a test for you. And then you had to go to one of these clinics, and there weren't many of them at the time, to get tested. It was pretty serious stuff. Um, as it got into summer, tests became more um, available. There were rapid tests, of course, as well. And now getting a COVID test is a, is a pretty easy thing because we have the infrastructure to make those tests now. But early on, it wasn't. Okay. And so these 10 accepted points, when we go back to the Spanish flu, are so significant because it's saying, here is what we have to communicate to the public. We have to tell you, tell them that this is an infectious disease you can give through others to others by coughing and sneezing. You got to know that this about the Spanish flu. All right. You have to know that. And we did the same thing with COVID. Here are the things you got to know about it. You have to know that in close contact indoors with people who are breathing air, that's a challenge. Okay. So if you're going to be in close contact, you better have a mask on or you better not go out. Or maybe there's some places like a bar or a club that really can't be open because it's just too dangerous. All right. All right. Let's take our break here. When we return, we'll start with point number four and kind of talk about how public health offices got set up in various states. See you in just a second. So this next, <laughs> these next four or five sections are going to seem like deja vu all over again, because if you lived through the last year, and I guess year and a half almost now, um, the arguments that we had, the conversations we had mirrored those that occurred in 1918. And I, I should have, um, I don't know if I said this when I, when I started discussing this book, but, you know, Nancy Bristow wrote, writes this book in 2017. I think it's published in 2018. Nancy Bristow had no idea that COVID was a, was a thing or going to be a thing when she wrote this book. She was writing a history for the reason she says, because she feels like it's been ignored. So it's not like that, that the author of this book found examples to match on to COVID. She just is telling the history of the Spanish flu. And my, oh my, does it track really, really well with some things that occurred during COVID. All right. Before we get there, though, let's talk about public health just a bit. And then we'll look at points five, six, and seven, uh, which I think will be of great interest to you. All right, organizing the public health forces. First off, we have to have a field director in every single state. All right, so 
every state is going to find someone who has a particular skill set and knowledge in this thing uh, we call public health. All right. These positions are typically appointed um, there. It is possible that there are some positions in, in these kind of public health fields that are elected. But typically these are appointed positions based on skill set, knowledge, taking an exam, um, interviewing well, whatever the case may be, not typically spoil system jobs and not typically elected positions either. All right. There was federal level support through something called the USPHS, the United States Public Health System. This was like a forerunner to something like the CDC. Um, but basically at the federal level, they were giving technical advice as well. So if you think about um, why North Carolina made some decisions that they made, in part, they were making decisions in relation to CDC guidelines. Pretty much every single state in America got their start with CDC guidelines that were passed down. And then from there, the states sort of made their own decisions based on, you know, what they they felt like it fit them. All right. So again, places like New York or Los Angeles, large metropolitan areas that were really ravaged by COVID early on, you know, they had a lot stricter enforcement than Monroe, North Carolina did, in part simply because of how people live. I mean, you, you just think about it. I mean, millions of people, I don't know if millions, at least hundreds of thousands of people are taking the subways every day in February and March when this virus is circulating. It was a powder keg kind of situation in a place like New York City. So the, the, the local uh, public health organizations might have been more strict than what the CDC guidelines were even um, uh, guiding them to do. And again, a guideline is just that. It, it's a guideline. Um, but if you act within the guidelines, it provides you a bit of protection. I think a lot of businesses, school systems especially, were worried about liability during COVID. They were worried about, you know, sending their employees into a situation that was too dangerous and going outside the guidelines set by the CDC. So no matter what kind of anyone tells you, that the CDC sort of is a, a backup plan, right? And, you know, you know, businesses sort of needed the CDC to have some guidance so they could sort of make their own decisions, um, especially, you know, larger corporations, you know, kind of needed, wanted that desperately so they could make their own decisions. All right. There's Red Cross at the state level. All right. So this is, you know, the Red Cross is, is acting not so much as public health, but they're they're dealing with sort of people that are that, that have the flu or they're providing a little bit of kind of background um, for maybe maybe distributing literature, doing some of that sort of stuff. Um, but the, the Red Cross, in this case, are the helpers. Uh, they're not really the experts. That's the public health officials. Those are the doctors and also the nurses as well. Oh, yeah, here's another one. Nursing shortage, a big problem. Um, we didn't experience this uh, acutely during COVID. Um, we did face some some nursing burnout. And of course, it was quite scary for nurses because, you know, there are stories of nurses that couldn't go back to their family for fear that they would pass on COVID. Um, we know stories of nurses that contracted both the Spanish flu and they contracted COVID. Um, uh, doctors as well that, that, that contracted these diseases. So there, there are some issues at play here, which again, kind of track on a little bit to what we experienced just last year. Okay, five, six, and seven are gonna seem like I'm telling you something that occurred in 2020, but I promise these things happened in 1918 and 1919. All right, the first thing you have to do is you have to instruct the public. There is this awful, terrible disease and we gotta tell you about um, this disease. Constant vigilance during the Spanish flu about covering the cough, washing hands, even masking. 
Sound familiar? Okay. I can remember distinctly PSAs from all of these, you know, Hollywood figures and like NASCAR drivers. NASCAR did one as well about, you know, how long to, to wash your hands for. Sing the happy birthday song. Count your ABCs. Um, and that's how long you should wash your hands and teaching you um, how to do that. All right. Um, that was 2020. The same thing occurred in 1918, 1919. Now, it wasn't on the Internet. It wasn't in a YouTube clip. It wasn't on television, but it was through literature. It was through the newspaper, constantly instructing people, cover cough, wash hands, mask up. But disagreements as well. Should kids be in school? Should some businesses be essential and others shuttered? Remember this? Should your barber be essential or your grocery store? Should they both be or neither of those things be essential? What does it mean to be essential? Isn't it essential for someone to have access to daycare so they can go work? How can we say their grocery store is essential than not have someone uh, to take care of someone's kids? Okay. These were concerns that were had in 2020. There were also concerns had in 1918 and 1919. If we're going to go to the lockdown approach, then that means that some people are going to be able to keep their business open and some people will not be able to keep their business open. I'll repeat that. If we do these things called lockdowns, some people are going to be called essential and some aren't. And that is a, that's a scary thing, especially if you're a small business owner. And again, it's, it's, it's balancing, right? I think we can probably all agree that a, a, a bar probably wasn't that essential in March of 2020, when we were really concerned about this disease rapidly circulating. But if you're a bar owner, your livelihood feels pretty essential to you. You got to make your mortgage payment. You have to pay your employees. Now, this is where the government steps in and tries to kind of provide through things like the CARES Act and through these um, uh, sort of payroll loans, essentially, is what they were. Um, so there were ways to to get around the problem of maybe shuttering a bar. But we all know that business is more than simply you know wages, right? It's a place for people to go. It's a social place. Um, it's 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 all the things we like about you know, being social and going out places, um, wrapped into those things. Here's another one that I, that I previewed uh, before the break. How do we balance the honest truth of the disease without creating panic? This was another thing that we all lived through a bit. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you were cool as a cucumber and COVID didn't bother you at all. You weren't concerned at any point. Okay. I cannot sit here and say to you that that was the case for me um, or a lot of people close to me because we just didn't know. All right. Um, my family, we didn't eat out for a month and a half. So I was the, the lone person that left the house. I did all the grocery shopping. We didn't eat out through drive-thrus or anything for a month and a half. That's a decision we made. And some people looked at us and said, we're overly cautious. I know people that didn't eat out for six or seven months. Okay. I know up until, I guess it was February or March. I know of a person that for, for many different reasons, you know, hadn't left their house even for a year. Okay. Now, again, what this is about is balancing safety with right, quote unquote, living our lives as people say, but this isn't about personal choice now, right? This is also about the relationship between me making a personal choice about safety and the role that the government plays. All right. The role that local officials play, the role that state officials play, the role that the CDC plays. Go back to 1918, 1919. Same thing. Roanoke, Virginia. 
the National Public Health Organization saying one thing, the governor saying one thing, Virginia has its own thing. Okay. I didn't talk about this, but the, you know, in that, in the, the early part of that chapter, it describes that basically Roanoke's public health officials were saying, don't gather together for Christmas. And when that happened, you know, when, when CDC was given some of that guidance and local officials giving some of that guidance in, in around Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, some of you were saying, heck no, Christmas is a time for family. We cannot not have family around for Christmas. And well, when you have it a hundred years ago, that was a decision that public health officials were, were, were making. They were saying, look, it's a bad idea to go visit someone at Christmas. It is a really bad idea to have Thanksgiving. They were saying that a hundred years ago, not something that was invented just out of thin air. Okay. Um, how do we then mobilize the public? All right. So we instruct them to how do we mobilize them first? And this is the tricky part. This, this is the great irony of the role of the public health official. Public health officials don't come into our house. They, they don't have an enforcement mechanism. I mean, there are some instances where public health officials have enforcement mechanisms, but this isn't one of them. So like if, if I'm not masking up like, a, like the local health mandate says I can, the public health official is not the one that enforces that. Okay. And so the public health official is, is providing the instruction and then telling the public, look, it's on you. It's on you to wash your hands. It's on you to wear a mask. It's on you to social distance. It's on you to um, uh, uh, to quarantine. Look, the guidance was pretty clear. If you had a close contact with someone with COVID, it was 14 days. Did everyone do that? I probably think they didn't. Okay. But why didn't the public health official come and step in? Because public health officials typically don't have enforcement mechanisms. They have to depend on other authorities to do that. Okay. Um, I'll talk about that in, in, in section seven in just a moment. Some public health is a bit of propaganda. Okay. Um, some public health is a bit of propaganda and propaganda is where we, you probably all know this. It's where we take information and we present it in such a way that we want to create one outcome and one outcome only. So whether that's for people to be incredibly cautious of the Spanish flu or of COVID, or we want people to be incredibly um, at ease with the Spanish or the or, or COVID, and and part of that is is a bit natural, um, and by natural I mean the complexity of any medical issue is too complex for most people. It, it just is, and so you have to simplify the issue in its most simple form um, in order to get people to do what you ask of them essentially and so you know they made this little connection between germs and germans why why germans germans were the enemy during world war one okay it's propaganda it's silliness but that's part of it okay um people that and there were and you you heard people and you saw people there were people that convinced that COVID was a hoax from the beginning and that it was all a propaganda tool to, you know, for the government to have more power. OK. You know, and, the, and then there was, you know, the, the other part of it where. I'm not saying these were identical points of view, uh, but some people so cautious, you know, it went the other direction as well. Um, once we had a kind of better understanding of how the science worked, 
you know, wearing a mask outside 200 feet away from the next person, probably not necessary. Um, but again, this is really no one's fault. Um, in, in the big picture, and what I mean by no one's fault, it's that medical issues are, are tricky and complicated, and you just have to put your trust in these public officials to tell you what is best to do. And the problem is, is that public officials can change their mind about things, which is totally normal and totally natural. Because as science changes, information comes in, then you update the, your process. We talked about this the very first class when we talked about the process of the scientific method. You know, science is not an outcome. Science is a process. The same is true with public health officials. They are not um, providing simply outcomes. They're going to update their information as they get more information in. And this was this was oftentimes, you know, not received well and received as a form of propaganda because, you know, there were people that didn't understand sometimes the complexities of what it meant like, you know, what it meant to give advice during a pandemic. Um, and they weren't always right. Okay. So if, if someone's not right about something, then you're less likely to trust them as well. Okay. Getting now to enforcement. And this is where we'll, we'll, we're in, we'll end for today. What happens if the public doesn't comply? How does enforcement actually work? Um, during COVID, we saw how this worked a bit, depending on where you were. Um, for the most part, enforcement of something like masking, for example, enforcement took place um, with businesses. Uh, businesses were kind of at the front lines for um, keeping their employees and other customers as safe as possible by enforcing something like masks, okay? There were, of course, some businesses that did, did not really enforce it, nor did they care very much, and we knew those places as well. Um, the same was true with like, uh, what do we call that? Um, sorry, I'm blanking on curfews. You know, we had curfews for much of that year and a half where, you know, at, at nine o'clock restaurants had to stop serving food or 10 o'clock they had to stop serving alcohol or something like that to kind of get people to go back home and not hang out until one in the morning at a bar and catch COVID. If the business doesn't enforce it, then some sort of public authority has to enforce it, like the police. And Union County, where Wingate is located, said very early on that they were not going to enforce mask mandates, okay? They weren't going to stand in the way of businesses, but they weren't going to enforce them. Meaning if you called um, the sheriff's department, they were not going to enforce a, a mass mandate in the county. So that means that means that if there is a mandate from a local authority or the state institution and someone doesn't enforce that mandate, then it's going to be hard sometimes to achieve. Um, now, Wingate is a private institution. If you were here in the fall and you took classes um, uh, on campus in person, and I was I taught classes on campus in person, you know, as a private institution, we made some determinations about your health and the health of students and the health of other faculty. And part of that included masking and social distancing in the classrooms. OK, um, and I enforced that as a faculty member. I would not allow someone to sit in class if they didn't have a mask on. That was that was part of the enforcement mechanism. Spanish flu had the same problems that COVID had. You create guidelines, you know, from a national organization or the local government tries to create guidelines or tries to create some sort of mandate like a mask or something like that. If it's not enforced, 
I mean, I don't know if any of you are parents out there. If you are, if we got any fathers out there, happy Father's Day. If you have, you know, father that you love, uh, happy Father's Day to him as well. Um, got off topic there for a second. What was I trying to say? I forget now. What was I trying to say, Joseph? Okay, I'm sorry. Oh, if you're a parent and you have rules, and if a child breaks those rules and you don't punish, whatever the punishment is, whatever the, the consequence is, then they're just going to keep breaking those rules, right? So if, you're, if your mandate says we want people to distance, to social distance in our business, and you don't enforce that, then people are going to continue to do it. If you say the mandate is that, you know, we need, we really need people to mask up and you don't enforce that, then the mandate's not going to hold up very well. Okay. So this, this was one of the, this is, this is maybe the problem that public health officials have is they don't have oftentimes an enforcement mechanism. They are making decisions that they can't enforce effectively. All right. What are you going to do if they don't mask? You kind of call the cops and the cops say, we don't, we're not really going to enforce this. Okay. And, and I get, I get part of it. I, I do get part of it, the perspective from the, the police as well, that, I mean, they, they can't service 200 calls a day about someone not wearing a mask. Okay. Um, at the same time, if there's no entity to enforce it, it's going to be hard to have something like a mandate. Okay. Um, all right. Can we just talk about masks for a second and maybe we'll stop there for today. Let's turn to page 117. This is, I believe, San Francisco. All right. On page 116, you can see uh, a looks like a trolley conductor there with his mask on. And looks like some patrons are having their mask on as well. There is on page 114, a church service, an outdoor church service, fully masked outdoors. Um, no social distancing, but they do have their masks on. Page 117. Though the city, city relied on a range of preventative techniques encouraged by public health authorities nationwide, it was the masking of the public that many locals credited with slowing the pandemic. So a mitigation technique. Healthcare workers had worn masks from the beginning, and early in the crisis, the chief of the Board of Health, William Hassler, had urged others in close contact with the public to do so, in particular those working in stores and barber shops. Soon, Hassler called for the entire city to wear masks, and the Board of Supervisors passed an ordinance unanimously that required all citizens to wear masks, went on in public streets, in any place where more than two people assembled, and even in their own homes, if more than two people were present. All right. Um, next time, we'll talk about anti-vaccination movements. This one um, might surprise you. Um, you know, th th there has always been an anti-vaccine current in American culture um, that isn't really true of maybe a lot of other places, to be honest. Um, but even dating back to the 1880s, we see an anti-vaccine sort of strain um, in American history that, you know, goes away for a bit. And then the 80s kind of, and the 90s comes roaring back. And so if if a vaccine is an eradication measure, well, let's just talk, let's talk about it this way. If, you're, if your measure is mitigation and that measure is gonna be masks and people don't wanna wear masks, then you better hope to eradicate it. And if your eradication measure is vaccines and people don't want to take the vaccine, now you're back to the drawing board, right? Because you either you have to do one of three things, right? You got to lock down, you got to mitigate, or you have to eradicate. 
Um, and of the of the you know three eradication strategies, herd immunity, vaccines, or or therapies, um, vaccines might be the least intrusive when it's all said and done. But anyway, that that's the last part's maybe a, an opinion more than the, more than anything else. But um, just a reflection. Okay, let's stop here. Um, and I will see you all on Thursday. Remember posting this Sunday night. This is for Monday and uh, Tuesday morning quiz. See you then.